Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy, everybody. Before we begin the show, we want to share a podcast with you that we're loving right now and that we know you're going to love too. It's called Future Hindsight, and it is a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. The podcast is hosted by Mila Atmos, and each week on Thursdays, she shares her in-depth conversations with changemakers. Their 16th season out now is all about the social contract, its history, and investigating what it means for society today. If you're looking for more ways to get involved, this is definitely the podcast for you. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, I understand that we have a voicemail about my grammar that we should start with here. It's it's grammar time, Jason. Hi, I'm sure Jason didn't want to say Edie Allard made her first appearance with I. I'm sure he was telling... Wanted to tell his readers that Edie Allard had made her first appearance with me. And once you've started a whole missive with such a glaring error, it just throws the message off for the whole thing. Edie Allard joined me, not Jeannie Allard joined I. Luck to you. Bye. Okay. All right. This is like... I'm, I'm resisting the defensive urge to be like, well, we have listeners, not readers, because this person is very well-intentioned. And I will just say that this is a thing that I have struggled with my entire life. I think what she's referring to is I probably said, like, Edie's joining Ravi and I or something, which I recognize now when I really think about it is probably wrong. But Ravi, this is a real weak spot for me. Like, I'm a relatively accomplished writer, and I will go out of my way to avoid writing like having to figure out whether it's and me and I. So what's the rule? So well, I this, do this again. Th- that very brilliant listener uh, who didn't criticize me, so who's my newest <laughs> fan, uh, is alluding to the rule, which is that you should uh, isolate the pronoun when you're testing it. So the way to do it is, so if you said that, you know, Jason and I went to the store versus Jason and me went to the store, you say, uh, Jason went to the store, I went to the store, me went to the store. And the me obviously doesn't sound right. So you would do Jason and I went to the store. I went to the store. So you basically just focus on each pronoun individually. And it has to make sense standing alone for it to to work. Okay, here's where you it always gets me. It gets me when it's like, let's say it's like Ravi and I are recording the podcast right now. But I would never say I are recording. I guess, see, that's you just have where to change it, R. You just have to change R to am in those cases. I yeah, but, am recording the podcast, but you but wouldn't see say how confusing me that is. Yeah, you, you wouldn't, wouldn't say me, me either, am. but it's, yeah. I, but, so I think I say it right, but every time, like usually I say it right, but every time clearly I do. Clearly you don't, Jason. Yeah, clearly you don't. <laughs> every, 
every time I do, I'm like, this can't be right. Anyway, all right. Well, well thanks. we are we're using every excuse not to talk about the actual news of the week. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'll talk about anything if you want to talk about what you had for breakfast or, um, you know, any workout routines you have. Because I I'm not excited to really tackle this subject of the day. So. Ah, come on, let's do it. Shit happens. All right, here we go. Well, there was a, there was an election. And we're recording this on Wednesday. The election happened last night, and here's what we know so far. Uh, we know that the GOP nominee in Virginia, I, I think, swung from the previous election 12 points to beat Terry McAuliffe. We know that the, the New Jersey Democratic governor narrowly probably won victory there. And then there are other stories around the country, like a uh, Democratic socialist in Buffalo losing to a write-in candidate, the, the, uh, the current incumbent Democrat who ran as a, a write-in, uh, voters in Minneapolis rejecting police uh, reforms and probably reelecting their their current mayor. And there are a few other stories, but there's a lot happening. Maybe we'll start with Virginia, Jason. Any big takeaways from that result? Yeah, my big takeaway is that people do not see Trump as synonymous with the Republican Party. People see Trump as separate from the Republican Party. And part of the reason people see Trump as separate from the Republican Party is because we have been telling them that he is separate from the Republican Party for years. We have been making the mistake since he came onto the scene of saying, look, Trump is not like other Republicans, because that's been the short-term strategy for getting Republicans to vote for Democrats, which is to say, hey, Trump is on the ballot, and you may be a Republican, but you're not a Trump Republican, so you should, you know? And then, lo and behold, uh, other Republican candidates who are not Trump Republicans don't hold them responsible for Trump because both parties have been telling them that they're not responsible for Trump. And so to me, the big takeaway is you can't just go out and try and link Republican candidates to Trump. What you've got to do is you've got to convince people that Republican ideas are bad. And if you look at what they did to us back when Obama was unpopular in the midterms, for instance, they didn't say, oh, you know, like Kander's not like other Democrats. He's an Obama Democrat or so-and-so is not like, that's not the strategy they use. The strategy they use is they say, Democrats are this. And if you don't like this, you don't like any Democrats. And we have to be a lot more forceful. We have to get over the idea that we are going to tell people we love Republicans and Republicans are great except for this one, but please never vote for them. Like that's not going to work. Right. And the numbers here are staggering in Virginia. There was a 15-point swing, for instance, for white women to the GOP. And this is the suburbs, right? The suburbs where Democrats made a lot of their headway uh, in previous elections. A lot of that swung back in the other direction. And I think the, the best take I heard on this is that persuasion isn't dead. Like persuasion is alive and well, and we have to take it seriously. And obviously, given my background, the education component of this, Jason, is is a huge focus of mine. Okay. A lot of people are looking at this and going, all right, well, it's just critical race theory was the argument they made. But I think you think it's greater than that. You think that yeah. their argument about critical race theory is not exclusively, it obviously is, but it's not just a dog whistle for injecting race into the debate, but you feel like it's also tapping into something about education. Yeah. And I'm going to spend a lot of time in the months ahead on this question. To be clear, I've also spent a lot of time previously debunking, I think, a lot of GOP nonsense on this. And so hopefully I have a little bit of credibility on this in the sense that I think that they exaggerate it in a lot of places. In some cases, they totally make it up. But 
Democrats are vulnerable because in a lot of places, we don't offer a very precise, positive vision for education. And so in that vacuum steps, in some cases, a disingenuous argument and party. And I think this is a simplification, but essentially the way I see it is that Democrats, if you look at most Democrats' uh, platforms, and I looked at uh, McAuliffe this morning, I looked at the DNC, almost everything boils down to, here's a bunch of programs that we're going to expand. So we're going to spend more money and uh, we're going to whittle down accountability. We're going to whittle down school choice uh, and we're going to protect teachers unions. And you could like some of those things. I know a lot of people have complicated views on each of those subcomponents, but there's not much more. And I think voters, especially in these suburbs in Virginia, where there was a big debate on property taxes, for example, same with New Jersey, people look at this and say, things are getting more expensive. I'm not seeing better results for my kids. Uh, and these other people are telling me that the reason why there isn't any improvement to the system is because Democrats are obsessed with this you know, opaque theory. Uh, and so I think people are willing to buy that argument, even though it's super oversimplified is because Democrats haven't done a good job of saying what they're going to do for people. And that's where I'm worried is that I actually think that's a very effective argument. And I haven't seen a lot of Democrats countering that. Yeah. I mean, your point is, I mean, acknowledging that critical race theory is not taught in Virginia schools. Your, I think your point is that when you fail to make an argument on how to make something better, then people will accept a stupid argument of how to make something right. better in the absence right. of any other argument. Well, and, and you know, Yunkin's going to, he's going to deliver on one huge campaign promise, which is he's going to keep critical race theory out of schools because it's not there right now in Virginia. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but where it does exist is, uh, and I did an explainer on this the other day, which I think pissed everybody off because it, it kind of gave everybody something um, to refuted some assumption I think both sides had on this, is that the part of this that's actually true in a lot of places around this thing that we call critical race theory, but has so many components to it is that there are a lot of attacks on either AP classes, advanced classes, use of data to drive instruction, magnet schools, in the name of this term called equity. I actually have complicated views on this. For instance, I think that there are too many gifted and talented programs for very, very young kids in New York City, and, and I think those are stupid. But I also think the older kids get, the more you need to offer advanced classes and give different pathways and things like that. But it's like, if you look at some of the screwier things that have happened around the country, like the, the goings on of the San Francisco school board, for example, which you know got rid of one of their prestigious magnet schools, which was very, very important to big, certain communities like the Asian American community. <clears throat> Eric Adams's arguments about gifted and talented in New York is that these equity arguments are being thrown around a lot. In some cases, I think they're being applied to the wrong things and Republicans are salivating at that. So, but do you think any of this would be a factor at all if the economy were not improving? Like, I don't, I don't think it would, right? I mean, I think that these, these sorts of issues are the issues that people focus on when other things seem to be going well. And, and we, I think, make the mistake of saying like, oh, well, things are, are getting better. And so people are going to reward us for that. But that's not how American politics work anymore. I don't think. Yeah. I, th I think the way American politics works now is it's a debate over something. And each election cycle is a decision by the by the people who are voting over what it's going to be a debate over and who's going to win and who's going to lose that debate. And so basically what I'm saying is you have to have a fight over what are the terms of the debate going to be. So as soon as the debate became education, 
in Virginia, which is clearly in a lot of different ways going through a big argument over education, like you're losing, especially when you are the Democratic Party who's in power because you've been improving things. And then when on top of that, you don't get a lot of the stuff done that you said you were going to do. And you've allowed the narrative to become Democrats are stopping this from happening. Like that's the most tragic part of this. It's not just that we didn't pass big pieces of legislation prior to this election. It's that we allowed people to believe that the reason we didn't is because it was opposed by Democrats. I mean, it's opposed by literally every Republican in Washington and by two Democrats. And everyone's like, you know, the Democrats, they're against getting stuff. That to me is the tragic part. I don't know what our way out of this is, uh, except to say that you know, the Republicans are going to get in their own way on this, I think, in part because they, they're they not reading into Yunkin properly. There are takes on the Internet, to be clear, that Yunkin didn't have to go through a traditional Republican primary. It was a convention, so he didn't have to kiss Trump's ass in the same way that other people do. And I know a lot of Democrats rightfully point out the ways in which he did have to to bend to Trump. But you have to remember the Overton window has shifted so much that he 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 came across as moderate in this environment. And there's not much we could do about that. We could like he he was deftly able to paint himself as a moderate. In that situation, it was hard to pin him down. The good news for Democrats is that most primaries are going to resemble Ohio, which we've spent time on. Josh Mandel, JD Vance out trumping each other. And that's going to provide its own unique set of opportunities. Now it's not going to it's not going to give us the whole ball game, but it's going to be a different dynamic when the candidates are as extreme as those candidates. Because as you said, Trump is still not popular. But the thing is, is like two days ago, if we'd recorded this podcast, we would have talked about how extreme Youngkin is because of what he was doing in education, because he was banning Beloved and all that. So yeah. I guess my point is, is that we have to get over the addiction to the shortcut. And the shortcut yeah, the Trump, is the Trump blaming shortcut. Trump. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what it is. When when you look at what Reagan did in, you know, Reagan initially won probably mostly because Jimmy Carter was unpopular because of what was going on in the country. Now, I'm talking about some stuff that happened the year before I was born, but whatever. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I got this right. Right. So Reagan won mostly because of that. But then what did Reagan do? He didn't spend the next several years talking about Carter. Now, Granted, like Carter wasn't out there trying to run for re-election. Carter wasn't yeah. anything like what Trump is. But what he did instead is he spent his time arguing for why all the people who voted for him, not not why they should keep voting against Democrats, but why they actually were Republicans. And what happened? Yeah. A lot of them became Republicans. And my point here is that these uh, women in the suburbs who voted for Biden because they were voting against Trump and now are doing what they've always done in every previous election which is voting for the Republican, we have to stop making the argument to them that they should be voting against Trump or even Trump's party. But instead, we should be making the argument to them that they are Democrats. I mean, that's what you yeah. do if you are confident. Right. You know, I'm of two minds of this. There's one mind, which is like Trump's special because he is the authoritarian leader of that party. So he essentially dictates the terms and that will be true in the midterms. So it's like, you know, whatever the hell Putin's party is called, like, like let's say he, he did what he did with Medvedev and steps down as as the leader of the country, but is essentially running things behind the scene. This is a defaulty analogy in many ways, but like like it would be weird not to mention in in battles with his party around the country, like Putin's presence in the whole debate. But I'm, I agree with you that that it doesn't work. You know, but, it just doesn't work anymore. But I'm not saying don't talk about Trump. What I'm saying is don't put people like Terry McAuliffe and Phil Murphy in the position where they're the only ones linking their opponent to Trump. The right. entire Republican Party owns Trump. Like, period. Yeah, I agree. It's I no agree. more of this like, you know, well, some Republicans this and, you know, this is a Trump Republican. No, no, no. 
Trump equals Republican, Republican equals Trump, period. It doesn't matter. I mean, because it's true, right? And so like you have you have exceptions to the rule, but they're so rare. You have Spencer Cox. You have, you know, governors in places like Massachusetts and Maryland. You you have like three people, three people in the country, and then you have a couple of people who aren't running for re-election because they can't win because right. they're not a Trump Republican. And you know what that means? That means that Trump is a Republican like every other Republican. So we got to stop trying to link the two in terms of candidates and just start making the case that like Trump is the Republican Party. And that's not new. It's not like Trump changed the Republican Party. It's like he's just a natural outgrowth of what the Republican Party has been for a long time. That's how you win elections in a sustained way. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you've heard me talk about my Helix mattress, my favorite mattress I've ever gotten. But Helix has left the bedroom and started making sofas. They just launched a new company called Allform, and they're making some of the best sofas I've ever seen. I've got one in my apartment, and I've now gotten one here in my office, and these are super comfortable, unbelievably easy to put together, and I couldn't say enough about them. Jason, I know you have one. Yeah, it's actually become one of my favorite places to write. Like, the sun shines right on that little spot, so I like to lay on that couch and work with a little bit of sun on me. Allform sofas are are also delivered directly to your home with fast, free shipping. In the past, if you wanted to order a sofa, it could take weeks or even months to arrive and you would need somebody to come and assemble it in your home. All form takes just three to seven days to arrive in the mail and you can assemble it yourself in a few minutes. No tools needed. They even offer a forever warranty, literally forever. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash majority 54 and all form is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority 54. If you've ever wanted to make your home feel safer, there is no better time than now. This week, our friends at Simply Safe are giving Majority 54 listeners 40% off their award-winning home security. We love Simply Safe because it has everything you need to make your home safe. Indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant you need it. Well, Simply Safe, they're named Best Home Security System of 2021 by US News and World Reports. And you can easily customize the system for your home online in minutes. That's what I love about this, is how easy it is to just get installed. And you can even get free custom recommendations from Simply Safe. And these are Simply Safe's biggest discounts of the year. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over $100. There are no long-term contracts or commitments. It's a really easy way to start feeling a bit more peace of mind. So take advantage of Simply Safe's holiday sale and get 40% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com/majority54. Again, simplysafe.com/majority54 for 40% off your entire system. Hurry, this offer ends soon. So that's the Republican takes on this. On the Democratic side, there were a few down-ballot races that I wanted to elevate here, largely because they confirmed my narrative, not because um, there's anything (laughs) uniquely objective about this analysis, but uh, indulge me for a second. I was up in Buffalo uh, for the Buffalo Bills game, and I was driving through. Buffalo is one of the uh, most segregated cities in America. There's basically a Mason-Dixon line in the city. You could you could draw the line um, where black people live and white people live. And I was driving through the black neighborhood and there were right down Byron Brown signs, by the way, greatest slogan in the history of politics. It's a write-in candidate, the current mayor, fourth term mayor who lost the Democratic primary and then ran as a write-in. Everywhere in the black neighborhood, there are Byron Brown signs. I get to the white neighborhood, which is where my friend lived, uh, she wasn't white, by the way, if she's listening to this, she'll get mad at me because she supports India Walton. But uh, the, the Democratic Socialist candidate who won the Democratic primary 
huge support in the neighborhood that I was visiting, which is a higher income neighborhood. And I asked somebody, uh, not my friend, but somebody else, hey, who do you think is going to win this election? And they said, oh, it's going to be India Walton. They live in the fancy neighborhood, obviously. And I said, well, you know, I saw all these signs in the black neighborhood. And they're like, oh, the developers are forcing people to put those signs up. And I'm like, all right, this is a problem. Uh, <laughs> like, like the idea that there's only one possibility for communities of color when they reject, I think, like elite progressive sort of ideas like democratic socialism, right? Which I know is a complicated term and, and I believe in some things that are democratic socialism, whatever. But that was a rejection of socialism. I don't know what anybody, there's no other way to, in, to interpret that election other than it was an, a, a rejection of socialism, just like Minneapolis was a rejection of defund the police. Uh, they literally rejected the ballot measure to, to transform the police department and are it seems poised to reelect the mayor who's an opponent of defund the police. Now, that doesn't mean that's true of everywhere. Cleveland, for instance, had kind of a countervailing narrative. But my point on this is I'm a little bit more comfortable going to this place that's been in my head for about a year or two, which is I'm I'm ready for this debate. I respect the, the counterpoints on it, but I do think as a strategist that, that defund socialism and things like that as much as I have a lot of heart for the people who've been pushing these ideas, I do think that they're problematic for us in a lot of races. Well, I think at the end of the day, like when you go too far one direction or the other, you're just less. I mean, and I don't mean like you can't be progressive. I mean, like, like if you're really, really far right or really, really far left, it's a gamble, like because there's fewer people yeah. out there. And right. that's that's why Yunkin was able to look successful. Right. Because he was able to look like he wasn't Trump when you are hitting them with. And this is the thing is that like on, on the left, when if they're going to hit people with the you're a socialist, you're a socialist, you're a socialist over and over again. Well, I mean, either that's going to work or it's going to make anybody who's not look really moderate. And the same thing is going to happen uh, on the right. Like either you are Donald Trump or if you if because now if you if you publicly disagree with Donald Trump as a Republican on anything, people who are Republicans Done. are they're so thirsty for wanting to vote Republican again because it's their idea of who they are. Well, you've just given them the excuse. Right. And yeah. so I just and that, by the way, is what happens with Biden. Biden has become very far left on several things, but because he's Biden and because he disagrees with the far left on a few things that in the election gave enough Democrats who would be worried about the far left license to go, oh, it's Biden. It's different. I mean, yeah, you know, it's 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 just how it's worked for a long time. Yeah. It I, doesn't, by the way, mean that you have to be in the middle to win. It just means like if that's genuinely where you are, there are votes in the center for you. Yeah. And this is where I, I like the term eclectic, right? Like I think that there's a way to 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 pull together issues that aren't just like the average of the two parties, right? And And this is where I think Eric Adams is an imperfect vessel for this in New York City is that he's like a vegan... African-American former cop who stitched together, you know, most of the black and brown communities in the city and then Staten Island, where I grew up and was able to tell a narrative that appealed to those two places, at least in the primary. And he's not perfectly eclectic. I think a lot of people would say he's more moderate um, and centrist, but I'm I'm on the lookout for people who can kind of tell a totally different story, because I think part of what we need is somebody who just breaks through and says, all right, because people turn their brains off. They know I know what the Democrats going to say. I know what the Republicans are going to say. And unless you're telling a new story about America, you're not inviting new people into your coalition. And so so my point is, it's not that I'm not even a centrist, 
but I probably have more centrist positions than the average Democrat, but I also have more extreme positions on the left than other people. Like, you know, I'd probably ban factory farms, for example. So I'm kind of on the lookout for these people because I think that's kind of how we cut through the narratives. We've got to surprise people, you know? I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it's just authenticity. I mean, when you yeah. actually think about some of the positions that are dogmatic partisan positions for both parties, oftentimes they make no sense. I mean, the fact that the Republican Party is like, you can't be pro-choice and be in the Republican Party, like the party that's for small government and for, you know what I mean? Like, it actually is rather arbitrary. And it has to do with at some point, somebody decided to go after certain votes. When you look uh, at, for instance, in the we talked about it a minute ago in the Democratic Party, that being in favor of more progressive and progressive in the sense of big changes to the education system makes you not a traditional Democrat. But that actually is a, is a pretty arbitrary thing based on the fact that teachers unions are a big part of the Democratic coalition. So most people, I think, are politically eclectic. Yeah, my point. most regular people, not most. Very few human beings would if they if they were completely unaware of what the positions of the two parties were, would independently come up with a set of beliefs that fit perfectly within a partisan structure. Like I don't think anybody would do that. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. And I think part of my challenge is I view one party as way more of a threat to our country than the other. So I I, I know who I generally right. pull the lever for. But when we're engaging in, in ideas, it's more complicated. Well, and look, man, so, you, you probably uh, also agree with the Democrats on 95% of stuff. You, it's a just a of question of, of, yeah. of how, how emphatically you agree. And some of them are just like, you know, like how I feel about regulation, for example, which is like a lot has to do with who I'm trusting to do the regulating. Right. Uh, but uh, well, speaking of regulation, speaking of Democrats, we have uh, Build Back Better. I, I hesitate to talk too much about this because so much is changing by the minute. And honestly, I couldn't make sense of where this thing stands this morning when I was looking into it. So maybe we'll take a step back and just say, what, if any, connection between this election and Build Back Better do you see? I, I think I suspect I know the answer. Look, I don't think that having that getting the bills passed a few days ago would have been the difference in Virginia. I think it would have helped. I think momentum matters. But what what I, I see the connection is what I said a minute ago, which is the perception that it's Democrats that are keeping things from happening. That that's the problem. It's you know, look, I know that we're negotiating with Mansion and Cinema constantly, but I'm sorry if if we have no hope of getting Republicans to vote for this thing, why is the president not barnstorming the country, going into Republican districts, and and saying you you need to to have your representative vote with us on this? Like, why not? You have yeah. nothing to lose if they're not yeah. for it. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to Biden in the sense that I think he's just run out of time. Like, yeah. I think when he's when he when you think about everything he's got going on with COVID, trying to get this bill passed, trying to sell the bill, and then Afghanistan. I mean, you could just go down the list. It's like I look at this president and I see somebody and an administration that is stretched, and I'm worried about their ability to hold on with inflation, supply chains. I mean, this is a crazy amount of stuff, and I don't want to. I'm not giving them a pass because we don't even give a pass to Trump. You know, this is about where the buck stops and it stops with Biden. I'm I'm making more just a, an observation of I'm not sure he's they've got the bandwidth to do much yeah, here. That's fair, because let's 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 be honest, like I don't really have any major criticism to make of Joe Biden from a governing perspective on getting this bill passed. I mean, what's he yeah. supposed to do? Right. He's got yeah. two completely obstinate members of his own caucus and, and when he's only got 50 people like that sucks. And there's, and, and he I, obviously I would say has to convince them. And er, obstinate and erratic, right? Yeah. 
you know, er, 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 very erratic. So, yeah, I think it is probably unfair for me to say that he should also be handling the because they're separate because I'm talking about the politics. The, yeah. Like when you are when you are getting when you are this close to what will be passed, I believe, and, and what, you know, is going to be transformational, generational uh, legislation, like obviously you're doing a very good job from the governing side. Um, and it shouldn't just fall on the, on the president to carry the politics of the party, but, but we have to be careful to make sure that as we are trying to, um, win over these members of our caucus, that we're also getting it across to people that it is not our caucus that's stopping us. But to get to your point about how hard it is, is that the, the more we talk about how the Republicans are blocking everything, the more it might drive Joe Manchin to, you know, dig in his heels and say, well, we got to be more bipartisan. So who knows? I, yeah, I, I it's an no impossible idea. situation. We'll keep tabs on that. Well, why don't we just transform <laughs> this politics into a sports podcast so we can keep our mental health. You know, we're at the time when people start getting sick and it's not just COVID, right? I think we're being reminded that there are other illnesses out there. And that's why it's particularly important to maintain effective nutritional habits and give your body the nutrients that it needs to thrive. That's why I love AG1 by Athletic Greens. You know, the other day, uh, my neighbor, Jason, he asked me, like, Athletic Greens, like, for real? And I was like, no, absolutely. It's not just something I say on the show. Like, it's it's actually like a huge part of our lives. And, uh, and so anyway, I think now my neighborhood is starting to get on board with it. So what I love about Athletic Greens is that they're continually obsessed with improving AG1 based on the latest research. And they've produced 53 improvements over the last decade and counting. And they invest in high quality and reputable sources for each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure sure that their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best nutritional habits on the planet. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. If you visit athleticgreens.com majority today, again, simply visit athleticgreens.com majority to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. What interferes with your happiness? Is there something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? Obviously, a few years ago, I had a goal of actually being happy and I went to therapy and that's what's gotten me there. It's a huge part of it. If there's something getting in your way, don't let the various ways in which going to therapy can be difficult logistically uh, get in your way as well. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. You can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. Find the particular expertise you need online. Don't limit yourself to counselors located near you. Licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, and more. And anything you share is confidential. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com m54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash M54. Let's talk about your home state senator, Jason. He had some things to say this week. I can describe them, but I would, I just want to hear how you describe this incident. Just, I'm curious to see, to see what kind of flavor you put on this. So we decided this week that we were going to tackle this speech by Josh Hawley that is uh, supposedly about manhood and masculinity. I believe he called it the future of the American man, which, you know, is pretty audacious. Um, so 
look, there are a couple of things I think need to be said about this beforehand, because the instinct here is to just come in and just tear this apart and make fun of Josh Hawley, which don't get me wrong. I've we been will doing, do. Yeah. yeah we will and do. I've been yeah. doing that. Okay. But a couple of things need to be acknowledged. One, the larger picture, which is that this has the potential to be a very effective argument and 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 we should take it very seriously and and i'm going to go through that but the other thing is is that people need to take josh hawley seriously here's why one he's clearly a very intelligent guy uh, you know him personally i don't you you have a history with him he's clearly a very intelligent guy the other thing is it reminds me of something that um president obama said to me once he was talking about there are certain things that you can't control that tend to make you successful in politics. And he looked at me and he said, let's be honest, man, if you had a high squeaky voice, you wouldn't be sitting in that chair across from me right now. <laughs> and, and he's right. And Josh Hawley and I were both gifted with a set of pipes. And that matters in politics. Like what you look like matters. What you sound like matters. And Josh Hawley has a commanding speaking voice. And you can use it for good, I believe I've tried to, or you can use it for whatever the hell Josh Hawley is doing. So I want two things I want to do. I don't want people to underestimate the potential effectiveness of this bullshit argument. And two, I don't want people to underestimate the potential effectiveness of this bullshit or Josh Hawley. Because and both what are very is dangerous. It? Yeah, lay out for our listeners, what's the argument exactly he's making? Okay, let's start with how he started his speech. Tonight I want to talk to you about another aspect of the left's attempt to fundamentally remake America. I want to talk to you about the left's attempt to give us a world beyond men. He's trying to say, like, they're trying to get rid of men. Now, this seems like he's just going to speak to men because men are the you know largest voters in the Republican primary electorate. And there's a lot of that going on. But really what he's doing is the truthiness thing, which is the they're changing what we see as America and America has to be defended. This is just this is just white people stuff, all right? This is just like your basic stuff we've been talking about on the podcast over the last few weeks, which is they want to say to people, they're coming for you next. I want to get to the pornography and video okay. games. All right. So the headline from the speech, the one that really made a lot of news. Can we be surprised that after years of being told that they are the problem, that their manhood is the problem, more and more men? are withdrawing into the enclave of idleness and pornography and video games. So everybody heard this clip and they, you know, they took it as that's what he was saying in the speech. And if you take it by itself, it's pretty stupid. No question. And it's pretty stupid if you if you put in the larger context. But what's important here is what he's really doing and because it, it's very effective. And so I want to play that clip, but I want to start like three sentences earlier. So here we go. Now. I am not here tonight to tell you that men are victims. The last thing that we need more of in the United States today is the victim mindset. Men who blame others, men who blame others for their problems and then slink away to do nothing or worse, who embrace violence or cruelty deserve rebuke. Okay. And then he goes on and he says, you know, we can't be surprised if they're into, you know, men, football and, and porn because that's the, the fault of everybody else. But the reason I think that's so important is because his tell there is, I'm not here tonight to tell you that men are victims. But that's exactly what he's here to tell you. He's, he's, he wants to play the victim card. He wants to say men are victims. And the problem here is that 
everybody on the left's response to that as that message starts to get out more and more, which is what he'll do and what others are doing, is people are going to say, oh, but you support Trump, right? If you're saying we got to rebuke men who who embrace violence, men who are, you know, who who treat women poorly and all that, they'll be like, well, what about Trump? And that is completely ineffective because we have been telling people for so long that most Republicans are not Trump. Right. And if we've been telling them that, then that argument is irrelevant. And if he's going to tell people over and over again that men are victims and that everything that is wrong for men in this country, he goes in the speech, he goes into suicide and substance abuse and unemployment and low marriage rates. He's saying all of this is because liberals are mean to men. If if we don't challenge that, then that's going to be what people think instead of realizing, no, it's because we've made unions basically powerless and we don't pay people shit. Like, <laughs> but we're not making that argument back to them. You know, there's a, there's an article in Reason, which is actually a libertarian publication, that is the my favorite piece of content on this issue that I've found. It's by this guy named JD, and I think his name is Tusiel or Tusile. Uh, and he he basically compares Josh Hawley's argument to communist China. And basically says that basically what Josh Hawley's talking about is the exact same stuff that Communist China has been talking about. They've been restricting the amount of video game use that their population has. They've been talking about banning effeminate men from appearing in pop culture in the country and all that. And they basically compare him. And this is a libertarian publication, mind you. Like a lot of Republicans read this, comparing him to authoritarians. Uh, and uh, he ba they basically call him a control freak. And I like this line of argument because I think if you look at Josh Hawley, you could you could see where this is coming from. This is a guy that likes to have a lot of control over things around him. You know, he wants to control big tech. He wants. Well, to you don't have to look at him. You know the guy. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, anybody whose hair is as perfectly coiffed as his is you, you could tell is a control freak. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I like that line of argument because this is the nanny state right here. And and just like you say, just because you, you, I love what you said. Just because you you qualify it by saying that I'm not going to tell you you're a victim, then. When you tell people they're the victim after that, that doesn't mean that because you said you're not saying the victim that that somehow uh, immunizes you from the larger point you're making. That's exactly what he's doing. He's it's infantilizing like saying with all due respect. Yeah, it's like he's infantilizing people. You know what he should say? He should say, "Get the fuck out of your basement and go make your community better." That's that's all he needed to say. And he's gonna be like, "I'm not gonna make excuses for you. I'm gonna try to look out for you." But I'm not going to make excuses for you. And you know what? I'm going to I'm going to start by leading by example. You know, he he you know, he talked about he says the left wants to define traditional masculinity as toxic. And he says they want to define traditional masculine virtues like courage, things like courage and independence and assertiveness as a danger to society. I know this is not what you want me to do, Jason, but courage, independence from Josh Hawley. Like those are the values he's talking about. I know no. this is not what I'm supposed to do, but like this guy has not shown none of that. What do you like, mean it's not what you're supposed to do? No, like, meaning like this is the Trump thing. This is the, the Trump thing too. a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the guy literally shows none of those values uh, in his very important role that he has. And so the best thing he could do is actually model those values to the people in their basement who can't help themselves because their feelings are so hurt that they're watching porn and playing video games all day. So maybe he can show them. The point here is that you don't have to just 
use Trump as the uh, sort of opportunity for him to show courage when he when he didn't. Right. 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 Like, this is a dude who just gave an entire speech about how men need to be paid living wages and have good jobs in their communities. It's also a guy who supports right to work laws, which, you know, are, are about gutting unions. And, and, and a guy who, who his argument for how we would get to living wages is, well, you know, it's really a market correction. Like he doesn't support raising the minimum wage. So the, the courage argument is you are a guy who wants to over and over again screw over men and women in middle America and then tell them that it's because people are going on TV and saying that like it is bad when men don't get therapy right like like I mean that that's that's the part that lacks courage is like you are screwing people over and then telling them that it's somebody else's fault I mean he wants to say to people like no 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 I'm sorry the arbitration clause uh, that you didn't see in your contract, that's the reason that your employer has been able yeah. to steal wages from you for years and that there's not shit segment. you can do about it. And I, Josh Hawley, supported that all the way. No, no, that's not actually the reason that you've had wages stolen from you. It's because somebody took Thomas Jefferson's statue down. That's why. Yeah, I love this arbitration clause point, by the way. Not talked about enough. Shout out to Stephen Brill, who wrote a book, Tailspin, that kind of goes through how just bad that that sort of issue has gotten and not enough attention. Uh, One thing to sort of round out this conversation that I find interesting as somebody who roots against my old law school classmate at every turn, uh, even when he's going up against other far right people, is as a, as a student of politics, I'm fascinated by this dynamic between the Hollies, the Josh Hollies of the world, and the Ron DeSantis's of the world. And I think this is where Josh Holly has gotten too cute for his own good. Is that he's over intellectualized the experiment of American politics, where he's like quoting the founding fathers and trying to create this like fluid, like almost like philosophical argument. And I think he's misreading his audience. DeSantis, I think, is like the barstool sports candidate who's like, fuck it. I'm gonna throw the red meat. I'm gonna be very simple. I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into every possible fight I can get into and I'm gonna speak in very short sentences with very easy to understand actions and I'm gonna signal in every action I take who I am. And obviously I disagree with a lot of what DeSantis does, but I think that politics not that you or I are experts on right-wing politics. I, if I were betting, I would put my money on the DeSantis of the world. I don't think that there's an attention span in our politics for this shit that Holly is doing. Absolutely. Know? And what it comes down to is Holly's idea of himself. All right. Because at the yeah. end of the day, what Holly wants to do is he wants to go out and he wants to call everybody else an elitist, right? He literally yeah. in the speech, you know, says things like, you know, we need real dads, real, you know, real men out there who will do things like coach Little League. Well, my liberal ass yeah. is out there coaching Little League a lot. Okay. Yeah. And like, and, but, but I bet, I bet he's not. Okay. Because right. it's very important to him what he's doing. I'm not criticizing the guy for being a U.S. senator. Or even for not coaching Little League. What I'm saying is, is it's literally just reckons right back to the uniting language of Obama's speech in 04, which was that, right. you know, we're coaching Little League in the blue states, you know, right, we don't right. like people snooping around in our libraries in the red states. Like, so my point is that what he's trying to do is he's trying to match his idea of who he is because he thinks he's pretty damn special. And what right. he's not going to go do is he's not going to be like a Ron DeSantis. And I'll give him credit for that, that he understands that's not who he is. So what does he do to make up for it? He just spout, spouts on and on and on about the elitists and the what he calls the cosmopolitan consensus, Okay. That is not going to work in the long term. Okay. That, that was the strategy of Ted Cruz. That was the strategy. You're right. Like the people he wants in the long run are not going to go in for that because they're not yeah. going to connect with him. 
But yeah. we still have to be really worried about his argument because there's one last clip I want to play, which is... We need men to raise up sons and daughters after them to pass on the great truths of our history and our culture, to defend liberty, to share in the noble work of self-government. We need men to pass on the great truths of our culture and history. So the reason that you're in your basement playing video games and touching yourself is because <laughs> people are telling a more accurate story of American history. That's, that's his argument. And I want people to understand that while that is stupid, it is enormously effective because people who are depressed in American society because buying shit over and over again is not making them happy and because nobody has called them to actually do anything. All right. He's right about the fact that people haven't been called to do anything. The, the problem is, is he's not calling anyone to do anything. All right. Yeah. But he's he's diagnosed that correctly. But what he wants to do is rather than then call people to do something, to actually be tolerant of their neighbor, to incorporate people on the other side of their town into success without displacing their own success, or to you know say you should treat other human beings, including women, with respect. Instead of doing that, he's saying, again, it's because they, they tried to cancel Thomas Jefferson. That's why things are going poorly. Well, I this is where I'm a little bit less worried about Holly than others is because I think when I hear him, I hear a William F. Buckley country club Republican, uh, moral majority Republican in a world that's more NASCAR UFC at the GOP right now. And that's why I think, you know, when you see the right wing apparatus closing ranks behind the DeSantis of the world and not him, I think it's in part because they in their embrace of Trump. That that party has walked away. They've kept the sort of evangelical more more majority, but they've stopped using that language, except in like the dark corners of politics. And I think they they've embraced more this this libertarian, anti mask, anti close uh, school closures type thing. And so this is where I think he's going to get himself into some trouble. Is this whole moralizing piece? But could be wrong. No, I, look, I agree with you. I'm not worried about Josh Hawley. I'm worried about this approach because I think it's smart. Yeah. I think Josh Hawley is smart. Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna play one more clip because this is the clip that shows how other Republicans are gonna take this and connect it with what you're talking about, right? This is how they, they make it actionable and how they make it something that people see every day. For years now, Democrats and other leftists have insisted that America is systemically oppressive and unjust. Just listen to the president of the United States. Joe Biden has, as president, repeatedly decried America's systemic racism. His administration has loudly called for a new gender equity agenda. His nominees have advocated critical race theory. This past week, the administration celebrated the introduction of an ex-gender marker on American passports. Did you see this? Inflation may be rampant. Store shelves are bare. It costs 100 bucks to fill up a minivan in America, but the administration will not be deterred from focusing on the important issues. So to me, that last line is the most important. All of these things are problems, but all they care about is telling you how bad America is, which the corollary to that is all of these things are problems for you, but they're not working on those things because they don't care about you. And that's where I think this is a really dangerous and effective bullshit argument that we have to pay attention to. It doesn't mean we should change any of our policies. It certainly doesn't mean we should stop doing equity training for federal employees or making sure that all gender identities are reflected. Like it, it doesn't mean any of that, but it does mean that we've got to make really, really clear 
that we know how much it costs to fill up a minivan and we're trying to do something about it. I think that's an, a very effective argument that we have to be careful about. All right, for Gravenor, we think it's really important that we, in Majority 54 Nation, work to make sure that as people head to their Thanksgiving dinners, uh, which more and more will be finally in person this year, and to their you know Christmas dinners, their holiday dinners, that they are armed with the ability to to push back and to and to make arguments and to build bridges. And we want your help in doing that. So instead of us just coming on and doing a mailbag where we go through uh, you know your questions about how to do that, we want to actually model this for the for the audience. So we want one of you who's really nervous about one of these dinners or one of these gatherings coming up uh, to come on the show, and we're gonna go through this with you and we're going to game plan with you and then we're going to put that out for our listeners so if you think you would be a good candidate for that you got to leave us a voicemail at 508-687-2589 508-687-2589 we are looking for listeners who want to speak to us on the show so leave us a voicemail if you're interested all right as always i'm at jason kander on instagram and twitter ravi is at ravi m gupta on twitter and instagram and our show is at majority 54 on twitter remember we all have a platform make sure to use yours today Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hey, listeners. I'm Jenny, the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network, the network behind this podcast. We're so happy you're listening. I host another WMN podcast called Womanica. It's a five-minute daily podcast about women from history you may not know about, but definitely should. We've been publishing episodes for more than two years, and we just unveiled a really exciting new look and feel. This month, we're telling the stories of Indigenous women from around the globe. Check out Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.